Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns and Foster, Temper Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60 month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Well, hi again, everyone. I'm 1010 Wins Sports Director Mark Ernay. This is On the Mark, where we take a look at the stories behind the stories in the world of sports. And it is another podcast edition, another visit to the book nook as we talk about Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. It's from Simon & Schuster, available, of course, wherever you buy books. The author is the New York Daily News baseball writer and columnist since 1978. He's been a baseball Hall of Famer since 2010. I'm, of course, talking about the great Bill Madden. Bill, first of all, thanks so much for joining me, and how are you? I'm good. Hanging in as best I I can down here in Florida. (laughs) Well, at least you're in Florida where it's nice and warm. It's uh, sunny but chilly up here in New York today, in case you're interested. Well, that's why I moved to Florida. (laughs) <laughs> Good stuff. Hey, I only just very recently, as in I think yesterday, uh, learned that you probably owe your entire career to a connection from the basketball world. That's Can you correct. explain that for us, please? Yeah, when I was, I went to the University of South Carolina. I went down there originally on a track scholarship. And uh, while I was there, I got a job at the school paper. Uh, as a sports columnist uh, with a school paper. And one of my main beats was to cover the basketball team, which was coached by the legendary Frank McGuire, who's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. And uh, he won the national championship at North Carolina in 1957. And when he came to South Carolina, they immediately became a national contender all the years that Frank was there. And I covered the team. And at the time, there were... um, probably about 15 kids in the entire campus uh, from the New York, New Jersey area, 10 of whom were on the basketball team because Frank did all his recruiting up in the New York area. And me being from New Jersey, uh, I kind of blended in with the rest of his boys and I was, became one of Frank's boys. Anyway, after my senior year, uh, I had talked to somebody up in New York about how to get a job with a newspaper up in New York and, this person told me to forget about writing to the news or the post or the times or anybody, you should write to the wire services because uh, they would be interested in hiring a kid right out of college. And the fact that you've been in the North and you've been in the South and they cover the whole country, that would be a good start for you. So he, he recommended that I write a letter to Jack Griffin, the sports editor at UPI in New York. And I wrote to Griffin, I never heard anything back from him. Now I'm in summer school, uh, finishing up my credits, and uh, 
the editor, the sports editor comes out of his office and he says to me, he says, Bill, um, Frank McGuire's on the phone and he wants to talk to you. Now you have to understand, I was a cub reporter for the, for the state paper in, in, in South Carolina at the time. And this is like saying Rudy Giuliani's on the phone. <laughs> right. And everybody turns around to me and they, they're looking at me and I said, he wants to talk to me. And he says, yeah, I don't know what he wants, but he asked for you specifically. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got on the phone, Frank, I said, coach, how are you doing? He says, look, Billy, I don't have a whole lot of time. You better get on the phone to Jack Griffin right now. You've got the job. And I said, wait a minute. How did you get involved in this, coach? I said, I wrote to Jack Griffin six weeks ago or whatever. I never mentioned your name. He says, well, you should have mentioned my name. Don't you know that when I was a coach at St. John's, Jack Griffin was my ball boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I didn't know what to say. And he said, he says, just get on the phone to Griffin before he changes his mind. So I called Griffin and he said to me, he says, son, he says, do you know how many applications I have for a job here from people all over the country? You're in a stack of about a hundred of them. When I came to your name and I saw the University of South Carolina, I said, there's only one man who's going to decide whether you get this job or not. And that was Frank. I called Frank and he said, I should hire you. So I'm hiring you. That's incredible. That really is incredible. So now fast forward, and you, of course, have written uh, previously, among other subjects, about George Steinbrenner. You've also uh, written with and about Lupinella and Don Zimmer, and now this book about Tom Seaver. And I'm curious to know what made this process different from the others in your previous books. Well, I have to say, when I did Steinbrenner, I, I tell people Steinbrenner was a labor of labor. Uh, I spent five years on that book interviewing hundreds of people for that, for that book, most of whom, or a lot of whom anyway, I didn't even know. With the Seaver book, it was different. This was a labor of love because I was friends with Seaver. And the people I interviewed for this book are all people that I knew, the, his fellow Hall of Famers, his, his former teammates, and uh, of course, Seaver himself and his family. And uh, it was a, this is a very personal book for me. Uh, different from Steinbrenner, which was more impersonal. And, uh, and with, with Pinella and Zimmer, while we worked together, those were autobiographies. This was kind of the offshoot of a documentary I had done on Seaver, uh, in which I spent uh, the better part of four days out there in 2016 and 2017 out of this vineyard in Calistoga, interviewing him and his wife, Nancy. And uh, the documentary got done, but then in 2019, in, Mar in March of 2019, uh, the family put out the statement that he had suffered from, he was suffering from dementia, which I was not surprised at, because the difference between him in 2016 to 2017 was just dramatic as far as his memory was concerned. He remembered nothing about his his career the second time we went out there. So I was not surprised by this, but it was also very heartbreaking for me as somebody who was his friend. And anyway, at that point, at that point in time, uh, the person who was the producer of the documentary was a man named Martin Dunn. He was the former sports, uh, his former editor in chief of the Daily News. And he said to me, he says, Billy, you got to do the book now on this guy. You've got to do the book. He was your friend. 
And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you know, I knew I couldn't do an autobiography for him because of his memory issues. Right. But he said, you got to do the book. Nobody knew him better than you did. And if you don't do it, you're going to kick yourself because somebody else will do it. And so that's why I did the book. Well, it is a, it's a terrific book. And I don't want to give away any of the goodies, but uh, I was struck right off the bat, pardon the pun, by your first chapter, which deals with, frankly, my favorite Seaver memory, which was his 300th win, Yankee Stadium, August of 85, Phil Rizzuto Day. And immediately, Bill, I was curious to know how that moment earned, again, bad baseball pun, the leadoff spot before you would eventually take us back to Tom's childhood and then through his life in chronological order. Well, with all of my books, I always want to have the first chapter get people's attention rather than doing them chronologically, building to uh, some of the highlights of a person's career. And of course, the 300th win was about the most dramatic part of his entire career because of all the circumstances surrounding it. Um, of course, uh, he won his 299th uh, a, a week earlier. I forget where it was, but he hadn't even been looking ahead on the schedule. But after he won his 299th, somebody pointed it out to him and said, hey, Tom, your next start's going to be at Yankee Stadium. And he looked at that and he, he shrugged and he said, well, if nothing else, it'll be an easy commute for Nancy and the girls. Uh, his wife, Nancy, and his two daughters were still living in Greenwich, Connecticut, where they grew up while he was with the Mets. So we go to, he goes to Yankee Stadium, he comes, comes into New York, and now, I mean, there's so much added drama to this thing. It would have been a lot easier for him if he pitched it in Milwaukee or someplace. <laughs> but here he is in, Milwaukee, in New York. And on top of that, he's reading the paper. His game was on a Sunday, and he was home with his family in Greenwich. And he's reading the paper on Friday morning, and he sees that Sunday's going to be Phil Rizzuto Day at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> he, says, oh. he says, what more can we have to add to this thing? And, of course... Uh, Tony LaRusta, the White Sox manager, told me for the book, he said, you know, I was so concerned for Tom. There was all of this stuff going on with the Rizzuto stuff. And he said, I was worried that we wouldn't play well behind him. I felt like there was too many, the gods were against him on this whole thing. I so wish it didn't have to be in New York, didn't have to be on Phil Rizzuto Day. And I was really worried about him. Well, it turned out his worry was uh, not at all... Uh, to be worried about because uh, Seaver pitched a great game that day. It, and the, as he told me at the time, uh, both that day, because I covered that game, that game, and then of course he elaborated on it later for the book in my interviews with him later on. He said the proudest moment of everything was the fact that he pitched a complete game. Uh, of course, when I started writing this book, I realized that there were so many people would be reading this book and never saw Seaver play and pitch. And I thought to myself, you know what, this is almost like, for these people, it's like a book of ancient history because of the way the game has changed from the day Seaver was pitching. That day, he uh, twice was visited at the mound when he was either in trouble or it looked like he might be tiring, both times by uh, Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, because LaRusa got thrown out of the game. The second time Duncan came out to the mound, Carlton Fisk, Seaver's catcher, was with him. And, Seaver, and Fisk says to Duncan, he says, what do you, you can't possibly be thinking of taking him out of this game. <laughs> and Duncan says, I just want to see how he feels. 
So they get to the mound and, see, and, Dunk, and Fish says, Tom, you are not coming out of this game. I will not let you come out of this game. Do you understand me? This is your day. This is your game. And Seaver says, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm okay. So he, he was left in the game, and they wound up winning the game 4-1, to one, his uniform number, which Nancy Seaver later said, hello, as if the karma of, of the whole day. Uh, and then he wound up pitching. He was 30, Remember, this is a 39-year-old pitcher. Yeah. He wound up throwing 143 pitches in that game. It's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's this was a different time. Definitely a different time in baseball. And uh, Seaver wound up with um, he wound up with uh, 231 complete games in his career. He ranks sixth on the all-time list. Sixth on the all-time list with um, 61 shutouts. He's tied with Nolan Ryan. 61 shutouts. You realize. There's going to come a time when we're going to be putting pitchers in the Hall of Fame with zero shutouts. Zero complete games, too. Yeah. I mean, there are rosters right now with pitchers, five-man rotations, who in an entire career between the five of them won't even have 100 complete games, let alone over 200. Right. That's how much the game has changed. Unbelievable. Hey, again, I, I really do appreciate your time, and I could talk to you about this book and about baseball forever, but um, I want to try and keep it um, to a, a relatively short span. When I mention the name M. Donald Grant, what do you think of? Well, I think of M. Donald Grant and Tom Seaver, who were, became arch enemies, and uh, M. Donald Grant is the man that effectively ran Dick, ran. Seaver out of town, along with the help of Dick Young, the columnist for the Daily News. And the whole thing started in 19, in the mid, the whole thing really started around 1976 when free agency came into play in baseball. Seaver had already signed a, a three-year contract with the Mets at that time. And he made it clear that he didn't want to be a free agent. He didn't want to ever leave the Mets. So it was kind of left at that. But then after the 76 season and all these new free agents got these huge contracts and Seaver went to the Mets and he thought he would, he, he went to them in hoping that they might tweak his contract or improve on it or renegotiate it to, so that he would be maybe not above these people, but at least on a par with these contracts that these guys got as free agents because he was better than all of them. One of the examples was Don Gullett, who was a free agent from the Reds, and he was signed by the Yankees to this huge contract, mm. much more than Seavers, and he never won more than 14 games in a season. Seavers won three Cy Young awards. So anyway, he gets in this negotiation with Grant, and Grant – actually, it wasn't a negotiation. Grant said, we're not renegotiating with you, and at the same time – Grant was refusing to sign any free agents. He was trying to keep the Mets payroll at a minimum. Sound familiar? <laughs> so um, Seaver's blasting away at Grant in the papers about not trying to improve the Mets with free agency. He's also in this feud with him over his own contract. And Grant now starts threatening to trade Seaver. And finally, Seaver went over Grant's head and got a uh, – got the new uh, the owner of the Mets, Mrs. D. Roulet. She was the daughter of Joan Payson, the original owner of the Mets. He got her 
to agree to a, a new contract, a new, a new two-year contract extension with the Mets. And it looked like everything was settled. But in the meantime, Dick Young had been writing all these columns, blasting Seaver at, at the behest of Grant, calling him an ingrate and greedy and everything else. But it looked like this thing was finally settled when Seaver got his new deal, except Young wrote one more column. And as I say in the book, it was the 33 words that effectively drove Tom Seaver out of town. And these were the words, quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Seaver. And that galls Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly. And Tom Seaver has long treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother. Now, Nolan Ryan, of course, was... Uh, his former teammate with the Mets and had gone on to the Angels, and he also got a big free agent contract with the Angels. When Seaver read that column and was shown to him, the Mets were in Atlanta. This was June 15, 1977, the day of the trading deadline. Mm -hmm. He was at the pool with his teammates, and somebody showed him the column. He got up from the pool, he ran into his room, got on the phone, and called Joe McDonald, the general manager of the Mets, and he said, get me the hell out of here. This is the last straw. I will not tolerate him bringing my family into this. That I will not accept. And so that night, they traded him to the Cincinnati Reds, and along with Dave Kingman, they traded him to San Diego. And Kingman had been their all-time leading home run hitter, and he also had been in a contract dispute with M. Donald Grant. And that was what they called the Midnight Massacre. It was the darkest day in Mets history. Yeah, of course, the difference is not very many people miss Dave Kingman. <laughs> Aside from his power, he, you know, strikeouts and not a very, well, they not a very brought, happy guy. A couple of years later, they actually brought Dave Kingman back. Yep. And uh, as I talk about in the book, uh, Rusty Staub was on the team at the time. And Rusty had, just, had also just re-signed with the Mets after being exiled by Grant. And uh, Rusty was told by Frank Cashin, a general manager, he was gonna be the first baseman. And then they bring in Kingman. And as Rusty said to me in for the book, in one of his last interviews he ever did, he said, you know, I never forgave Cashin for that because they wound up making Kingman the regular first baseman and relegating Rusty to mostly pinch hitting duties. And because of that, he fell short of 3,000 hits. If he'd have stayed in the National League, I mean, stayed in the American League, he'd been with the Tigers, he probably would have easily gotten 3,000 hits over the next three or four years. Yeah, Instead, indeed. he languished as a pinch hitter with the Mets. Which he did very well. He was the best pinch hitter of his era, but uh, that was not the way he wanted to go out. Um, one other thing about Grant, and I only learned this reading the book, so I thank you for the education. Um, but the part of the story about Gil Hodges' tragic passing in 1972 on Easter Sunday um, and the whole timeline with Grant summoning Yogi Berra to his home in Florida, there was a strike going on, so the season hadn't started yet, and then the timing of the press conference. Bill, I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking to myself, I mean, there were unprintable words and, and, and words that I'm not going to use on a podcast even that I'm thinking about M. Donald Grant. And what was the reaction back in the day? Well, it was, it was everybody on the, from the general public to the Mets players and Seaver especially, it was furious at Grant for being so heartless and just having no, no compassion for the, for the moment. Uh, they're burying, they're burying uh, Gil Hodges out in a cemetery in Brooklyn, 
and at the same time, Grant's announcing a trade <laughs> in, the, in, in the clubhouse at Shea Stadium and also, in, you know, formally introducing Yogi as the manager. And um, Seaver was just, because Seaver loved Hodges. He was, Hodges was like a second father to Seaver. And Seaver tells me a story in the book that it, it, it's just, it's priceless in my opinion. He says, he told me about one, one, one time in his, uh, in Hodges's first year with the Mets uh, in uh, 68, he called Seaver into his office uh, and Seaver didn't know what he wanted, but Seaver was, everybody was fearful of Hodges because he was such a presence and, and uh, he was a stickler for detail and a stickler for discipline. Anyway, so Seaver goes in with a little bit of trepidation and Hodges says to him, sit down. He says, I want to ask you something. He said, did you ever, um, during a game, do you ever think about your wife? And Seaver said, well, yeah, all the time. I always look up in the stands to see where she's sitting to make sure she's there. And Hodges says, oh, that's good. I'm glad to know that. He says, you can go now. And so Seaver walks out and he says, I don't know, what, what was that all about? The next day, Hodges calls him in again. And Seaver's telling me the story. He said, I walk in there and I said, what, what could he possibly want now? So he sits down and Hodges opens up his desk drawer and he pulls out a picture. And it's a picture of himself rounding first base after hitting a home run, pointing to the stands and blowing a kiss to his wife, Joan Lombardi, a local Brooklyn gal that he married. Uh, she's sitting in the box seats there and he's blowing her a kiss. And Seaver said, he looks at that picture and he understood what Hodges was trying to tell him. And he says, every time I tell that story, it gives me goosebumps. It really is just remarkable, the impact that Gil had on the entire franchise in just that short time that he well, was the were, manager. They were both Marines. Seaver was in the Marine Reserves. Of course, Hodges was a decorated Marine in uh, World War II. They were both totally devoted to their wives and their families. They were good family men. They had a lot in common, and Seaver just, he just related to Hodges. And he, when Hodges died, he was devastated. I mean, that was a huge part of his life that had been removed. And uh, he never had a ma manager like Hodges, even though he had Sparky Anderson in Cincinnati and John McNamara, who was also a really good manager, and of course Yogi. But his relationship with Yogi was nothing like it was with Hodges. So he was not he was not a big fan of Yogi as a manager. He liked him personally, but he didn't think he was a very good manager. Yeah. Now, I don't want to fixate on 72, but the other thing I took from that particular chapter, um, you write about uh, a guy who was covering the Mets for the Post, Jim O'Brien, who was credited with uh, a quote that has been used in some variation for the next better part of 50 years, uh, writing that Seaver could have sued the Mets for lack of support and won the case without a jury because they weren't scoring any runs for him. And of course, what struck me about that is that we have said that so often in the course of Jacob deGrom's very brief career. And, you know, we have so many parallels, or at least we try to establish a parallel between Jacob deGrom and Tom Seaver. But Bill Madden, Hall of Fame baseball writer, you've seen it all over the years. 
can Jacob deGrom ever rise to the level of Tom Seaver? And I don't mean record-wise or achievement-wise, because obviously Jake has won the two Cy Youngs already and was very close to a third. But in terms of what he means to the Mets, can anybody ever match Seaver? Well, I don't know. Seaver is still and always will be, quote-unquote, the franchise. But I think Jacob deGrom, certainly if, he, if the Mets don't do something stupid like trading him like they did with Seaver, uh, I think Jacob deGrom, if he can stay healthy, uh, he will go down as, you know, right there with Seaver as far as one of the all-time iconic Mets. Uh, I will give you a, a good parallel here. You talk about Jacob deGrom's lack of support. This is a stat on Seaver. His 3.94 run support is the third lowest all time behind Nolan Ryan and Gaylord Perry. He had 105 starts of nine innings pitched, one or less runs scored for him. Think about that, 105 starts in which the Mets scored one or less runs. He was 90 and three in those starts. Wow. So when, when we talk about Jacob deGrom's lack of support, <laughs> he, 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 had a, he has a brother in arms in Seaver because nobody had, nobody, third lowest all time run support, 3.94 runs people. I don't know what it is with these great pitchers. I guess maybe the, the, the hitters behind them relax a little bit because they know this guy is not going to give up. He's not going to give up more than one or going to pitch a shutout every time out. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, neither DeGrom nor Seaver uh, have ever got a whole lot of support. It really is uh, very remarkable. Hey, did Tom ever make peace? Did he want to with Grant and or Dick Young? Never made peace with uh, either one of them. And really – he never totally made peace with the Mets, even though he came back and then they left him unprotected in 1983 for the free agent compensation draft and lost him again. Uh, he never felt like the Mets respected him. And I'm talking about all the way to the end. Uh, there's a, there's this segment in the book towards the end of the, uh, towards the end of the book when he was came back to city field uh, for the opening of city field, they brought him, brought him back. His memory was already going by that time. He didn't have any press conferences or anything, but he was there and he threw out, he threw out the first pitch to Mike Piazza. But when he was walking into the rotunda at City Field, and he, this, this story I got from a very close friend of his who was with him that day. He walks into the rotunda and he looks up and he sees all the Jackie Robinson stuff and the Brooklyn Dodgers stuff all over the place. And he started to seethe. And he talked to my friend and he said to him, he says, you know, Jackie Robinson was a great player. He was a great pioneer to the game. He was a tribute to the game. He says, but I don't recall him ever playing for the Mets. And his friend just looked at him and he said, I get it, Tom, I get it. And Seaver told me on, on a couple of occasions, he said, you know, the, the difference between the Yankees and the Mets is the Yankees understand their history. They cherish their history. The Mets don't understand their history, and they don't do anything about it. The day City Field opened, they hadn't even gotten their Hall of Fame room 
established in, in, the, in the ballpark. Can you imagine that? Yeah, I remember. And of course, that was one, you know, the whole Jackie Robinson rotunda, the color scheme with the orange and black reminiscent of the New York Giants. Uh, you know, that was one of the big criticisms of the stadium and, of course, of, of the Wilpons and, and their ownership regime, um, which takes me to, if you don't mind, uh, Steve Cohen, the new owner of the Mets, who has made a point of reminding us that he is a fan of the team, a diehard fan, on top of being for many years a minority owner, but now the sole owner, if you will, or the majority owner at least. Um, and he has made uh, mention that he will be bringing back Old Timers Day. So at least he seems to have um, a much more uh, measurable appreciation for the history of this team. Um, how important do you think it is that an owner of a team, I mean, it seems like a silly question. How important is it for the owner of a team to have an appreciation for that team's history? Well, it's very important. And I think the difference is Steve Cohen grew up a Mets fan. Fred Wilpon grew up a Dodgers fan. And that's the difference. Uh, Steve Cohen gets it. Uh, he gets the, the Mets history. He gets, Seaver would love Steve Cohen. I can tell you that because Steve Cohen's going to spend money on free agents, which Donald Grant wouldn't do. And Steve Cohen understands his team's history. In fact, uh, I sent Steve Cohen a copy of the book, uh, and I put a little note into it. I said, this is a primer on how not to run the Mets. <laughs> it's true. Sad, but true. Uh, hey, Bill, um, before I get into the current free agent situation that you just alluded to, uh, what is the number one thing you would want readers to take away from this book? Uh, I think it's probably the most important thing I think would be you really get to know Tom Seaver beyond Tom Seaver, the iconic pitcher. You get to know Tom Seaver, the person, uh, because I get a, a lot into his personal life and, and the way he went about everything in his life, not just pitching, but later on in life when he had the plan to go move to Calistoga and start start his own, build his own vineyard and go into the wine business. And he wound up making award-winning wine out there. Everything he did, there was a plan to it. And uh, this guy was a unique human being. He really was. And uh, that's, I mean, if he had just been a pitcher and a great pitcher, I may not have wanted to do this book because, you know, uh, he was so much more than just a great baseball player. Terrific broadcaster, too. And, of course, the irony of the Phil Rizzuto Day situation is that he wound up broadcasting alongside the scooter on Yankees games for a few years. And, uh, of course, he, he was, I think, uh, if memory serves, you correct me if I'm wrong, he was the first active player to serve as a color analyst during postseason? I believe he was, yeah. I know uh, Reggie did it, too, but I think Seaver was first. I think he was, um... I'm not quite sure of the of the year that was. But a but fantastic bro. I mean, the guy never did anything badly, right? Obviously, well, Hall of Fame pitcher, a great teammate, terrific leader, bulldog on the mound every time out. Um, again, broadcaster extraordinaire, and I think he could have been. I mean, seriously, if all he ever was was a broadcaster, he'd have been a Hall of Fame broadcaster too. And then with the winery on top of all that. Well, here's a, here's a little bit of irony, too. When he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1992, which would by, at that time was the highest plurality ever, 99.8%, plurality ever, 
he celebrated by that whole summer in the Yankee broadcast booth. Uh, how embarrassing was that for the Mets? He was now working for the Yankees when he got elected to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, again, when you're dealing with it, and this was obviously pre-Wilpons even, but uh, or at least they weren't the majority owners at the time, right? It was it was Fred and Nelson Doubleday back then. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, it was new owners, but um, again, they, they just, the Mets just never got it with Seaver. Uh, they had plenty of opportunities to hire him in their own broadcast booth before he went to the Yankees. In fact, uh, I, t I quote him in the book as saying that um, uh, he, he went to the Yankees because nobody else offered him a job. He says, I needed a job. It's sad. It's sad. And hopefully Steve Cohen and, and future generations of owners will embrace the history of this team. And even though it's been 34 years now since they've won a World Series, uh, Cohen certainly has thrown down the gauntlet, Bill. Uh, wants a championship the next three to five years. And, and with that, I would like to bring us to the current uh, free agent market. Trevor Bauer, George Springer, JT Realmuto among the names we're hearing. Uh, where do you expect those guys might land if not in Flushing? Well, I think... I think Cohen will probably sign two of those three. I really do. I, this is going to be a, this is going to be an interesting market this winter because nobody has any money. All these teams had no, virtually no revenues last year. They played a season without any fans in the stands. And that's a primary part of team's revenue comes from the gate receipts. And, um, and, as far as those people saying, well, you know, they got the TV money. Well, yeah, the national TV money, but it wasn't nearly what it was supposed to be. And their local TV money, half of it, they had to give back. So there's a real, there's a real uh, situation in baseball as far as revenues for all these owners. And I don't know how many big, huge contracts we're going to see this winter. I do think the, the, the cream of the crop of the free agents, there's only about a half dozen of them. They'll probably get their deals, but they're not going to be like these 10-year, 300 million kind of deals that we've been accustomed to seeing in the past few years. So, But I think Cohen will probably sign uh, two out of the three guys, the Rayamuto, the catcher, Trevor Bauer, or George Springer, the center fielder. Okay, now I didn't mention DJ LeMahieu. Were we expecting he'll stay with the Yankees? Yeah, he's not going anywhere. Cohen's not going. I wrote this a couple times uh, in the past few weeks that um, Cohen is not going to be poaching DJ LeMahieu from the Yankees. Uh, that, he's not interested in competing. As he said himself, I'm not interested in competing with the Yankees. They don't really need DJ LeMahieu. They need a catcher, and they need a starting pitcher. And... Uh, I don't know how many teams are going to be willing to give Trevor Bauer huge money uh, in this market because of the, you know, the, between the revenues and because the starting pitchers are always risky business when you give them a long-term contract. All right. I have to ask, I've, I've wanted to ask you this question forever. Um, your Sunday column includes a section called it's a mad, mad world. How did that come to be? Uh, well, it was, um, uh, when I first started doing it, uh, I always like to do it in a format where, in fact, everybody 
all of our columnists on Sunday that we all had the same kind of format. We'd have a, a big, uh, you know, four or 500 word lead on, on one particular subject. And then they liked us to get notes into the column and everybody had a different way they uh, described their notes. And somebody came up with the idea for me, they call it a mad, mad world. And so that's how it did, that's how it came about. All right, I've asked this question of, uh, let's see, uh, NBA legends. I've asked uh, NFL writers who will win a Super Bowl first, Jets or Giants. On the NBA question, who will win the championship first, Knicks or Nets? Bill Madden, you've seen it all in over 40 years of covering New York and at large Major League Baseball. Who wins a World Series first at this point, the Mets or the Yankees? I would think uh, I'm going to go with the Mets. I think the Yankees have some issues. Uh, they're they're at a point now where Chapman's you know Chapman's starting a little bit of a decline, and um, uh, I just I just think that um, and the Yankees have pitching issues. They always have pitching issues, and I think with Cohen behind the Mets now, if if he signs a Bauer, for example. Now he's got DeGrom and Bauer in his rotation, two number one pitchers in his rotation. Uh, and that goes a long way. And I think the Mets are actually probably closer, even though they didn't show up in the standings this year. I think uh, potentially they have a better chance of getting there ahead of the Yankees. I almost neglected to mention uh, Tanaka. Does Hero stay with the Yankees or is he moving on? I don't know. I think the Yankees feel like they got the most for their money out of him. And anything now would be uh, gravy. And, and you, you know, he's, he's getting up there in years. And uh, I don't know if they want to go back there again, unless they have to, because there's nobody else out there. I appreciate the insight. One last thing, uh, not related directly to the book, um, but even before COVID, obviously the art of sports writing has evolved over the course of your career, but um, what has been the impact on you and on your colleagues, not only of, of COVID and having to deal with the pandemic, but also social media at large? Because I know from a radio standpoint, it's changed a lot of what we do. How has it changed what you do? Well, it's entirely different from when I first came up uh, with the Daily News in, in the, in the mid-70s. Uh, first of all, the writers, the beat writers, travel with the team. I traveled with the team on the team charters. So we were all like one family almost. Uh, we, we stayed in the same hotels. We traveled on the buses together. We uh, drank in the same bars together, ate in the same restaurants a lot of times together. And um, it was a whole different thing then. Um, today, there's such, a, there's such a separation between the writers and the players, uh, first of all. Oh, and the other thing was, you'd walk into the Yankee clubhouse back in the 70s, and I always used to tell my backup uh, beat writer when he'd take over when I was on vacation or something, we had to always had to do early stories to hold up space in the paper for the game, especially for night games. And 
everybody used to always sweat out your early stories because it, it had to be readable, but you knew it was going to get thrown out of the paper as soon as the game was over. So I used to tell my backup guy, don't worry, never worry about your earlies. The Yankees will always provide. And of course, what I meant was you'd walk into the Yankee clubhouse on any given day and there'd be Gossage, there'd be Reggie, there'd be, there'd be uh, Billy Martin when he was the manager. There'd always be something going on in the Yankee clubhouse, usually involving Steinbrenner, that everybody was bitching about. <laughs> and so you never had to worry about your early. In fact, He'd walk by Reggie Jackson's locker and he'd stick his foot out to make sure you didn't go past him because he wanted to talk to you. Uh, today, you walk into the Yankee clubhouse and there's nobody there. The players are all in another clubhouse behind the clubhouse for their own personal, you know, taking care of their own personal needs or whatever. And none of them are at their lockers. So you really get very little pregame access and they're cutting that back anyway. And then after the game, it's all programmed. The PR man will bring out, you know, uh, will bring out the hero of the game, the pitcher, the starting pitcher of the game. And then little by little, some of the players will come out and be by their locker for maybe five minutes or whatever. And that's all you get with them. Uh, whereas in the old days, players love to sit around their locker after the game and talk to you. Uh, it, that just doesn't happen anymore. I want you to look in your crystal ball, April 1st, 2021, Yankees on opening day. Uh, if there is a vaccine that works and a majority of the population accepts it, takes it, and we are closing in on quote unquote normal, do you think given the way we were dealing with every sport this year as far as zoom press conferences and everything do you expect we'll ever get closer to normal back in the clubhouses pre-game post-game or do you think things stay as they were here in 2020 well i think for 2021 uh it's going to be uh, it's going to be very iffy as to whether or not we get back to that kind of sense of normalcy first of all when you say april 1st i think may 1st is a much more likely starting date than april 1st and then as far as allowing reporters in the clubhouse to do their interviews, it'll be interesting to see what baseball does about that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether people are going to have to prove that you've been tested uh, or prove that you've got, had the vaccine. I don't, know how, I don't know how any of this is going to work, but I have a feeling that they're going to, they're going to use this as a reason why reporters don't need to be in the clubhouses anymore. That's what I fear. Hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I tend to agree with you. Hey, listen, thank you so much for the time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, folks, it is a terrific read. The book is Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. And frankly, I think it will make a terrific holiday present to not only a Mets fan, but to any uh, baseball fan. I'm Mark Ernay. This is the terrific Bill Madden, and you're on the mark.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023.